Hi, this is Ben Thompson, the author and founder of Stratechery. Welcome to the Stratechery Daily Update podcast, where I read you the daily update. You can also read the text of the daily update or find the links I reference by visiting the show notes in your podcast player. Now, here's today's daily update. Today's daily update about Morgan Stanley acquiring E-Trade, Intuit reportedly acquiring Credit Karma, and user acquisition of market power was published on Monday, February 24th, 2020. Good morning. Today's update looks like it is about fintech, but really it's about the power of owning the users. That's right. Aggregation theory is inescapable. On to the update. Morgan Stanley acquires E-Trade. From Bloomberg. Morgan Stanley agreed to buy discount brokerage E-Trade Financial Corp. for $13 billion, pushing further into the retail market in the biggest acquisition by a Wall Street firm since the financial crisis. The all-stock takeover adds E-Trade's $360 billion of client assets to Morgan Stanley's $2.7 trillion, the company said Thursday in a statement. Morgan Stanley also gets E-Trade's direct-to-consumer and digital capabilities to complement its full-service, advisory-focused brokerage. Our clients increasingly want digital access and digital banking, and their clients want wealth management advice, Chief Executive Officer James Gorman said in an interview. It's the continuing evolution of Morgan Stanley into a stable, well-diversified business. The most obvious takeaway that Morgan Stanley wants to upsell E-Trade customers to Morgan Stanley Wealth Management is likely mistaken, or at least overstated. On one hand, E-Trade's customers are likely to be people who explicitly don't want Morgan Stanley-style wealth management, or else they would already pay Morgan Stanley. And on the other hand, the sort of young people who might grow into sufficient wealth that Morgan Stanley's offering is attractive are increasingly on Robin Hood. That noted, E-Trade's more retail bent, particularly its banking operations, have real value to Morgan Stanley. A big part of Morgan Stanley's business is making loans to its wealthy customers. But to make a loan, a bank needs cheap deposits. Given Morgan Stanley's lack of a retail banking operation, that has long been a struggle. This deal will increase the share of deposits in Morgan Stanley's funding mix from 21%, where it has been stuck for years, to 26%, bringing both financial and regulatory benefits. What is probably more interesting to Morgan Stanley is E-Trade's corporate stock plan offering from the Wall Street Journal. E-Trade's crown jewel is a comparatively low-profile business, managing the stock that employees at hundreds of companies receive as part of their pay. Those shares are typically locked up for a few years, and when they become available, E-Trade aims to move those employees into brokerage accounts. Morgan Stanley has a competing business, which it expanded a year ago by acquiring Solium, a privately held specialist in the space. After buying E-Trade, Morgan Stanley would have more than 4,000 corporate customers and $580 billion of stock held on behalf of their employees who might, it hopes, one day be rich. It was pretty clear from the Morgan Stanley investment call that this was very attractive to CEO James Gorman. When asked specifically about the corporate stock plans, Gorman answered. Yeah, it's always tricky. I mean, listen, we, we as, I, as I said at the beginning of this call, the longer our discussions went, the more excited I became. Um, yes, it's gotta, there's got to be the appropriate cost synergies. Uh, yes, it can't be too dilutive. Um, 
yes, you've got to have the right culture and you've got to sort out what your strategy is around branding. Yes, there's got to be additive platform and services. Uh, but the more we dug into it, we just saw more opportunities to gain revenue by effectively cross-selling to the different client bases. And as you said, higher conversion rates. I mean, you start with that 15%. Uh, but clearly, we see very significant revenue opportunities over the next 10 years. And, you know, you look at where our wealth management business has come since we added in the lending products, since we gathered deposits. There is just so many ways in which we can add value to our clients. And and you've pointed some of the, the obvious ones. We're deliberately not putting numbers on that because, you know, we we got to close this deal first. We got, you know, we got a lot of hard yards to get done, but we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't think there's real power there. This does seem like a real win. Morgan Stanley actually has fewer customers than E-Trade, 3 million versus 5.2 million. But the average customer is $900,000 under management, as compared to E-Trade, 69,230. Acquiring those customers at the moment, many of them first receive a significant amount of stock, is not only valuable for any broker, it is likely particularly attractive to a business focused on advisory services. As for E-Trade, there is still money to be made without user fees. Lots of companies are willing to pay for order flow, but it has much lower margins. Selling now, even if the stock is far below its one-time peaks, makes sense. It is a bit of a shame, though. E-Trade was a symbol of an era leveraging the web to democratize something that was previously reserved for a small minority of people, and to the company's credit, built a multi-decade business out of that. Intuit reportedly acquiring Credit Karma. Meanwhile, from the Wall Street Journal, Intuit Inc. is nearing a deal to buy personal finance portal Credit Karma Inc. for about $7 billion in cash and stock in a move that would push the bookkeeping software giant further into consumer finance, according to people familiar with the matter. The maker of TurboTax could announce a deal to buy privately held Credit Karma by Monday, assuming talks don't fall apart, the people said. Credit Karma was valued at roughly $4 billion in a private share sale about two years ago. Credit Karma offers its customers free access to their credit scores and borrowing history, alerts to possible data breaches, credit monitoring and tax preparation, and filing. Customers in turn receive offers from other companies for credit cards and loans tailored to their credit history, and Credit Karma makes money when customers use those products. Adding the buzzy startup to its stable would give Intuit a stronger foothold in the burgeoning realm of online personal finance. In addition to TurboTax, the online software that millions of people use to file their taxes, Intuit's offerings include QuickBooks bookkeeping software used by businesses and Mint, an online budgeting platform that also pitches individuals' financial products. Intuit has a market value of roughly $77 billion. The most important number for understanding this deal is $100 million, as in the number of users Credit Karma has in the U.S., U.K., and Canada. $90 million of those are in the U.S. specifically and half of them are millennials. TurboTax, meanwhile, into its largest product, has around 38 million users. Guess which product is going to be front and center for all those Credit Karma users in years to come? I'm no TurboTax fan. Intuit's sordid history of blocking or restricting free tax filing is well documented. At the same time, though, the company has built a real business. Pay a fee to use software that helps you file your taxes. Credit Karma, well, not so much. Affiliate fees on credit cards and loans are basically a form of advertising. 
Credit Karma is paid not by the customer they refer, but rather a percentage of sales from the product that customers actually hand over their hard-earned money for. User acquisition and market power. There is, if you are like me, an instinctual disappointment, if not distaste, with companies like Credit Karma. Why sell out to Intuit, or before that, push customers to credit cards and bank loans, instead of, you know, actually building a business? Then again, what is the most obvious sort of business for Credit Karma to build? Perhaps the company could use the data it has about you to help file your taxes, or help with your personal finances and bookkeeping, which, obviously, is basically Intuit. This leads to some interesting conclusions. First, when marginal and distribution costs decrease, the value of user acquisition increases. This makes intuitive sense. Low marginal and distribution costs means it is viable for a large number of companies to serve a large number of users, unconstrained by geography. The competition, then, is particularly intense, which means there is outsized value in being able to acquire customers efficiently. In this case specifically, Intuit can easily scale to serving many more customers. It just needs to figure out how to acquire them, and Credit Karma is perfectly placed to grow the top of Intuit's funnel. Second, the implication of user acquisition being of outsized importance means that Credit Karma, despite only having rudimentary tax filing tools, was actually one of Intuit's most dangerous potential competitors. The hard problem isn't the software, it's acquiring the users, and Credit Karma was already very successful in that regard. This means that acquiring Credit Karma is not only good for Intuit's business in the short term, but also the long term. Third, from Credit Karma's perspective, being acquired not only leads to a major payout for executives and investors, it also does not necessarily restrict upside, since the previous two points, the addition of Credit Karma at the top of the funnel and the elimination of competition, likely makes Intuit more valuable in the long run. This then leads back to some of the regulatory issues discussed in First Do No Harm. The truth is that Intuit acquiring Credit Karma is, if you care first and foremost about competition, the exact sort of acquisition that should have you concerned. In fact, if you squint, you can see the parallels to something like Facebook and Instagram. In both cases, a company with a proven monetization engine was acquiring a company with powerful user acquisition capabilities to the long-term benefit of both the acquirer and the acquired and to the detriment of competition. Contrast this to acquisitions that plug technology or employees into a larger entity. Those diffuse technology and provide a landing spot for failed startups without seriously altering the competitive landscape. If there is a regulatory way forward when it comes to acquisitions, this is precisely where the line must be drawn. Acquiring for users is inherently more problematic than acquiring for capabilities. Even then, this isn't as clear-cut as it seems. I don't see any particularly significant competition concerns in Morgan Stanley's acquisition, even if it is about user acquisition. Perhaps that is because Morgan Stanley's business is not perfectly scalable in the way that software or digital advertising is. What is worth noting is that what left E-Trade little choice but to seek out a sale was Robinhood, which is a user acquisition machine funded by, you guessed it, de facto referral fees, those refunds for order flow I referred to above. What will be interesting to see is if that is a business model sufficient for an IPO, if Robinhood will have to actually build more of a business, or if there is one more blockbuster acquisition in this space to come. The Daily Update is intended for a single recipient, but occasional forwarding is totally fine. If you would like to order multiple subscriptions for your team with a group discount, please contact me directly. 
Thanks for being a subscriber and have a great day.